You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome. We're here to discuss the importance of informing and involving patients in decisions about their health. This isn't just an ethical imperative. Shared decision-making could improve the quality and reduce the cost of medical care by reducing unwarranted variations in practice. All too often, care is based on doctors' preferences and ability to provide it, not patient needs or preferences. The stimulus for this debate is the publication on bmj.com this week of the Salzburg Statement. This is a consensus statement drawn up by an international group of experts which calls for patients and clinicians to work together to be co-producers of health. To promote debate on it, we've set up a series of three roundtable discussions. The first discussion will look at the history of shared decision-making and where we are now around the world. The second will discuss a vision of the future and the barriers to getting there. And the third will look at the information needs of patients and doctors. How good is the information available to them and how much better could we do in making good information available? So for the first discussion, I'm delighted to introduce Dr Angela Coulter, who is Director of Global Initiatives at the Foundation for Informed Medical Decision-Making, based in Oxford. Hello, Angela. I'm also very pleased to introduce Professor Albert Mully, who is Director of the Dartmouth Centre for Healthcare Delivery Science. Welcome, Al. And we have with us also Samir Gray, who is the Chair of the UK's Information Standard. Welcome, Muir. We also have Professor Glyn Elwin, who leads a research group on shared decision-making at Cardiff University. And finally, Marion Collict, National Programme Manager for Shared Decision-Making in the NHS. Welcome to you all. Angela Coulter, if I can start with you, could you tell us briefly what the impetus was to get together a group of people in Salzburg to discuss shared decision-making and what the statement that was developed is calling for? Yeah, the the impetus, I think, was um, because a number of us have been interested in this area for quite a long time, doing a lot of research, a great many studies on how to engage patients in decisions. Um, And indeed, there is now quite a lot of policy interest in this. But um, the the decision to have a meeting, an international meeting, was really born out of frustration that these well-researched ideas are not being implemented in clinical practice and that many patients, uh, indeed the majority of patients in almost all countries, um, report that they're not involved as much as they'd like to be, they're not informed as much as they want to be, um, and that uh, decisions are made without really trying to elicit their preferences and explain to them the pros and cons of the options. And what are the the main things that the statement recommends? Well, the statement uh, calls on a whole variety of groups, including uh, doctors, patients, researchers um, and policymakers, to take this issue more seriously. Um, to, um, uh, for example, clinicians um, are exhorted to um, make sure that patients are fully informed, um, make sure that they allow time to uh, in- help patients understand the options they face, understand both the harms and uncertainties of medical treatments as well as the benefits. And a lot of evidence suggests that um, clinicians are very good at explaining the benefits, not very good at explaining harms and uncertainties. Um, 
patients are called on to um, be more um, assertive, really, and to engage more in the decisions and to make uh, even greater efforts to understand their condition and the options. Um, and policymakers uh, really need to make all this possible in, in health systems and to sweep away, <clears throat> sweep away the barriers uh, to change. Thank you. Now, in the UK, we have a government that has pledged to put patients centre stage and give them choice and, and signed up to the principle of no decision about me without me. Al Mali, you set up in the US the Foundation for Informed Medical Decision Making. Um, and I, I just wondered if you could tell us how well you feel that has fared. Well, I think the foundation has made uh, great progress, but we established it many years ago. And uh, there's a lesson there uh, to be learned as well. The foundation was established in 1989 after nearly a decade of research trying to understand uh, practice variation and to distinguish between sources of variation that were unwarranted because of inadequacies in the evidence and our ability to estimate probabilities of good and bad things happening to patients. And, and on the other hand, the warranted variation that really does make care patient-centered. If all variation were bad, it would be an easy problem to solve, right? We would just say no variation. So the first shared decision-making program developed by my colleagues and I, Jack Winberg, and many others, was designed to diminish as much as possible the unwarranted variation and hold up the warranted variation, even honor it, because it's what makes care truly patient-centered. We published three papers that led to the Agency for Healthcare Policy and Research being founded in the United States, and that's when we created, the same year as when we created the foundation. The notion was that we would bring together like-minded clinicians and investigators who wanted to decrease the unwarranted variation while making care more patient-centered by holding up that warranted variation. And um, also to be sure that, that the approach was devoid as much as possible of conflict of interest, that the goal was to uncover true demand, give patients the care they need no less and want to know more. Now, we've fared quite well recently. Shared decision-making is very prominent um, in state legislatures. Some states have passed laws um, indicating that shared decision-making is the new standard for informed consent. Um, the recent health care uh, reform bill in the United States um, uh, has a prominent place for shared decision-making, in including uh, language recognizing the importance of the unbiased and objective nature of the information that's given to patients. Um, however, as I said, it's been a long time since we began down this road, and one shouldn't underestimate the cultural resistance to change among health professionals, among patients in the public, and among policymakers. Um, in order to see it really reach its potential. And, and that's exactly the challenge I think we now face in the UK. Mio Gray, how, how do you feel we're getting on in the UK in promoting shared decision-making, and, and, and what do you think needs to happen to make that happen more? Well, I think the first thing for us in the, the Department of Health was a recognition that we were in the middle of a revolution. We just woke up to it. The, the last revolution in healthcare, the last 40 years, have been fantastic, yeah coronary bypass grafting, chemotherapy, MRI. And we, in a sense, were in control. You know, We were doing it to people, and it worked very well, really, for 40 years. But now something else is happening. And uh, Manuel Castelza calls it the new industrial revolution, that, that citizens' knowledge and IT are actually just running things in a way, and the professions are 10 or 20 years out of date. 
And uh, the, the reason that you... It used to be that the doctors were very hostile to this idea, but my old professor in Glasgow used to talk about la maladie du petit papier, you know, a little bit of paper comes out of the pocket. But it's now la maladie du grand printout. You know, the patients are coming in with a grand printout. So we have to compete with the internet. You can't control the internet. So citizens, the internet, and knowledge. So that was one... We, we think we're in important jobs, but we're not in control any longer. We have to negotiate in a new way. The second thing, and as you know, we, like every health service in the world, are facing huge pressures of need and demand and no more money. But the second thing that emerged, and it came from the work of people like Al Murray and Jack Benberg, and it's fantastic we're, we're looking at your cover of the 26th of March, BMJ, the variation story, that as you do more health care for a population the balance of good to harm starts to change. And in, as we've increased the amount of resource going in, we're now treating different groups of people and the probability of benefit is less and the probability of harm stays the same. So the offer is different. So we felt that, for firstly, it's happening and we just need to try and get maybe five years off the pace instead of 10 years off the pace. And secondly, it's, uh, we feel a moral responsibility and a professional responsibility to make sure, as Jack Venberg said, that if a patient doesn't understand the downside of treatment and they would have refused the treatment if they had, we're operating on the wrong patient. So it's not just the you know, mistaken identity, it's the wrong patient. So these are the two things. I, for the final point, even if we're putting money into the health service at 5% a year, we would be doing all of these things. It's, it's the, the money's helped put it on the agenda, but it's not to save money. It's really to do what we all want to do, maximise the benefit and minimise the harm. So our policy is, firstly, the shared decision-making using decision aid tools, and uh, Marion will speak about that. But secondly, the health service produces, I think, 200 million, 100 million lab reports, 600 million prescriptions and probably a billion letters a year. And in my experience, not one of them has got a decent bit of information in it. You know, that, and that's, that's a billion letters going to people you could put really good quality information in. So we see the need for, for really intensive support in, in Al Mali's word when there are fateful decisions uh, like hysterectomy or knee replacement. But all these, these little decisions like, do you want an antiviral screening test? Just let me take a blood sample. You know, we need to give people much better information or it'll come back and bite us. So that's the strategy we're following. On the question of decision aids, Marion Collick, you're involved with the government's programme to roll these out to help promote informed shared decision making. So can you tell us what aids are out there and who's providing them and whether they're really readily available to doctors and patients? We um, we have three decision aids that have been um, developed, um, tested, and and launched, and they're available through NHS Direct. Um, that there's one for osteoarthritis of the hip, one for benign prostatic hyperplasia, and one on um, prostatic cancer. There are another three decision aids that are currently being piloted. Uh, we have one for amniocentesis and chorionic villi sampling. PSA testing and one for breast cancer uh, and a third um, lot that are being developed currently, one for osteoarthritis of the hip 
one around uh, AAA, uh, abdominal aortic, aortic aneurysm. Uh, and then there is a, a, a further phase of four, uh, phase four, which we're looking at another 15 decision aids um, that are in the process of being commissioned through NHS Direct. So it's interesting, somehow one imagines there'll be decision aids for, for the whole gamut of, of medical conditions. And, and honestly, it is a big job, isn't it, to create a decision aid, to make it evidence-based, to pilot it, to test it. So people might be surprised that there are really so few available. There are others, but these are ones that are in some way accredited. Or, is that these, right? Yes, there are, um, I think, around uh, 500 decision aids available in, in, in throughout the world. Um, and a lot of uh, the decision aids that we are looking at are ones that have been adapted, um, anglicised, uh, and, and taken from some of the work that's been done um, in, in the States um, and with other uh, providers. Okay. Thank you very much. Glyn Elwin, you're leading a research group into shared decision-making in Cardiff. What's the evidence that it really improves the quality of care and, and can reduce overuse, underuse and misuse of medical resources? The best evidence we have um, comes from a collection of randomised trials of the use of decision aids, and this is called the Cochrane Systematic Review that Annette O'Connor has led on for many years. Um, the published version has 55 trials, but I understand there's a version with 86 trials now. And the evidence is remarkably consistent, actually, that when you use these tools, um, it leads to a very good gain in knowledge on behalf of patients. The first thing that happens. So they become more informed. The second thing that consistently happens is they become a better able to judge the likelihood of harms and benefits happening. And that's remarkable, really, because many patients, when they first um, meet a choice, are a bit surprised and shocked that they are given a choice. So that these tools can take them over that shock, if you like, to understanding the likelihood of those things happening is a big benefit. It leads those patients then to have the concept of what we call decision quality, that their informed preference uh, is aligned with their knowledge. So somebody who doesn't really want something to happen picks the intention of the treatment that they really w fits in with their preferences. And I think that's the kind of sweet spot of shared decision-making, if you like. The added benefit, and this is where policymakers, I think, pick up their ears, is that in some situations, it appropriately reduces cost. So if you're facing maybe elective surgery or discretionary surgery, you may defer you may wait a little bit before you have the knee operation because you now realize that there's a long recovery period or there are issues about, well, it may reduce pain, but it may not increase my function so much. So I'll wait a little bit. So it appropriately reduces cost when people become informed. So that's the evidence base. And uh, clearly, all those things are good things. Um, and that's why there's such a lot of interest, I think, in these tools at the moment. Thank you. It seems to me there must be a range of models of good practice in relation to shared decision-making. I don't know, Al, you've, you've done a great deal of work on the business of supplier-induced demand and um, the sorts of things that Glyn's just talked about, about waiting lists and informing patients for prostate surgery and how they dropped off the waiting list when they found out that it was um, not going to be quite such a great operation as they thought. Can you talk in terms of what, in your experience, are the, the best models of, of implementing shared decision-making that you've observed? Well, I think it's really important to recognize that this isn't just providing information to patients. Mm. Um, it's, um, it's, it's much more than that. It's, it's uh, giving them a sense of what the options are 
and getting them to understand, as Glenn said, that there is a choice to be made. Um, that's sometimes a little bit um, easier said than done because bad outcome, I mentioned before the cultural changes that need to occur among professionals and patients and policymakers. Patients often will pull back. Even the most um, assertive people in the rest of their lives will pull back from responsibility for making medical decisions because they intuit that um, there's a bad outcome that may occur. And bad outcomes feel worse when you feel responsible for the decision that led to it. So you really do need to let the patient understand that there is a choice to be made. And the choice depends on professional knowledge for sure. That's what gives you the sense of what the choice is and what the likely outcomes will be. But it also depends on your personal knowledge. Different people feel very differently about precisely the same illness, the treatment, the outcomes. And unless you engage in that thinking, unless you engage in thinking about your attitudes towards risk, whether you're the kind of person who lives for the moment or lives for the future, um, you will get treatment that's not right for you. The key, I think, to, to really determining what are the best methods for doing shared decision-making is to put much more emphasis on measuring the quality of decisions. And how does one do that? How does one measure the quality of a decision? Well, you, you, you work really hard to understand what, what is, is called by some psychologists the gist of the choice, the gist of the decision. Um, what is the trade-off that's, that's most important for most people? You then find ways to determine whether or not a particular patient understands the gist. Uh, most people who receive revascularization for coronary disease, whether it's surgery or whether it's denting through an intravascular procedure, fully believe that they're reducing their risk of having a heart attack or sudden death. For the vast majority of people, there is no reduction in risk of sudden death. And for everyone, there's no reduction in risk of heart attack. That's an example of making a fateful decision in the face of easily avoidable ignorance. So you could measure how often are these decisions being made in the face of avoidable ignorance in this setting. You could also ask people how they feel about making a trade-off between their physical function, limited by angina, and putting their cognitive function at risk. And then look at whether or not that population of patients treated in this setting shows that there's a relationship between what they say they care about and the treatment they get. If we consistently measured the quality of decisions, and if clinicians were rewarded for achieving high quality in competing to do so, we would see a dramatic change. How would you do that, Muir? Measure it and reward those who do well. Well, I think we have to start. They, they, I mean, clinicians want to do this. This is something they think they do. Uh, the work of Gerd Gigerenser has shown that actually clinicians don't understand probabilities better than members of the public. And my experience in the screening programs was it was much harder to ha to, for clinicians to learn about probabilities because they've got to unlearn something. 600,000 pregnant women, you give them the information and at least 40,000 of them will understand it better than the midwives and obstetricians because they come to it fresh and new. The key thing for clinicians, and this is partly to clinicians who are listening, you just don't have the time. I mean, this is a time-consuming exercise. So it's not something that clinicians can do, even if they're terribly well-trained, that we couldn't afford the time. So we now know that, that patients are up for it. They're willing to do prep before the consultation and homework after. Uh, so we're looking at a new way of doing things. The weakness then becomes the information that they're given. And uh, the information standard we've uh, introduced, and it's, it's a, a kite mark for the quality of information, 
And the veins say the response has been terrific from the patient groups, like the Terence Higgins Trust. They've all said, yeah, we think we do pretty well, but, you know, what's the evidence? How do we express probabilities? I think we've had less than 10% of NHS organisations express any interest at all. Um, they say, oh, well, we're too busy or... I mean, a, a hospital with a £400 million turnover told me it couldn't afford the £5,000 cost of doing it. So the NHS brand is not a reliable brand for information. Now, we can control some of this through the decision aid tools, but we have to think of everything we do, these hundreds of millions of bits of communication, supplementing and complementing the face-to-face consultation. And this, of course, is the key issue. What is the function of the human being in the digital age? This is Mr. Gates' question. And I don't think we've quite worked that out yet. So, Marion Colick, what, what would you say about making these decision aids um, accessible, not accessible in terms of available, but usable by doctors? How do we train them to want to use them? <laughs> I think that's the multi-million dollar question, really. Um, and part of the programme is, is very much focused on creating a culture that's receptive to these decision aids. And I think it's, it's a balance between um, the clinicians being... Um, getting on board with this and understanding it and actually re- uh, responding to a different way of, of working and the patients being much more empowered and aware of where, where that information is, be, being aware that that information is available to them and being able to bring the two together. Um, I think that, that, that it's, it's one of those things that we have to work through with our royal colleges. We need to start embedding it in, in the training um, of doctors, not just doctors. I think we have to remember that there are other clinicians who are involved uh, with patients. So we have nurses as well who require, who are as paternalistic in their approach to the delivery of healthcare as doctors are, really. And we need to sort of uh, address that as well. Angela Coulter. Um, when you think about long-term conditions, which is actually the most important work that the NHS does, um, helping people to manage their long-term conditions, it accounts for about 70% of all NHS expenditure, and it's the same in every country. Um, actually, making decisions for people instead of helping them to make decisions with you makes no sense at all. People with long-term conditions live with their condition. They have to self-manage whether they want to or not. They have to be self-managers. So the job really ought to be empowering them to manage. And you don't do that by uh, taking the, the important decisions out of their hands because you get it wrong anyway when you do that. Um, it, an awful lot of management of long-term conditions is about... Um, managing behavior ordinary everyday lifestyles and telling people what they ought to do doesn't work helping people to make their own decisions about what's possible for them in their context which only they can understand is what it should be about and this really does it sounds very obvious but it actually really does mean a big change in the way uh, the kind of clinical conversations happen Um, and it means um, clinicians respecting patients' decision-making role, respecting their uh, their role as co-producers of health, if you like, um, and supporting that, not undermining it. If you, the, the kind of paternalism that Marion's talking about, um, which is very prevalent in the NHS and many other healthcare systems, is a very benign form of paternalism, but actually its effects are rather damaging because it undermines people's sense of ability or capacity to do things for themselves. So uh, the, the decision aids help in all of this, but actually they're the easy bit. The much more important bit is changing clinical consultations. Glenn Irwin. 
I just want to pick up on that difficult bit, the changing the conversation, because we've been uh, working on a program um, uh, of trying to implement a tool for um, treatment choice in bre early breast cancer. And the breast care nurses have been willing to try and use a measure of decision quality. And we had a lot of resistance at first. And they said, wow, we don't like asking these questions to the patients. It's about testing their knowledge of what's going to happen in breast cancer. Quite difficult questions about what kind of treatment would you prefer and so on. And do you know the risks of uh, local recurrence after lumpectomy or mastectomy? They felt that these questions were just too difficult for patients who've just been diagnosed. But what we found um, is that they've, they've did it a few times on our assistance, as it were, but they become extremely interested in the results of these questions, not as a research tool, but in the consultation. It's alerted them to the fact that their patients didn't know about the equal survival between these two operations, that they didn't know that there was a higher chance of recurrence in the breast after lumpectomy, and that these things mattered to the patient. And they've realized in a way that what they assumed to be what they'd given knowledge and a lot of leaflets and so on, the patients hadn't taken it in, actually. And this has alerted them to the fact that they need to do their conversation slightly differently. And rather than become an impediment, the measure has been an activator of good practice. And we're quite interested in that process of using these tools, not as a research measure, but as an intervention in the dialogue. And that's quite exciting for us. We've obviously got a, a long way to go as as medical professionals, health professionals and patients to, to, to get more shared decision making. And in our next session, we will be looking at some of the barriers uh, to reaching the vision of proper shared decision making. But I'd like to thank Angela Coulter, Al Mali, Mia Gray, Glyn Elwin and Marianne Collect for contributing to this first round table. Thank you very much. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.